Welcome to the Anthropology and Business Podcast, where you'll learn about the many ways anthropology is applied in business and why business anthropology is one of the most effective lenses for making sense of organizations and consumers. Through conversations with leading anthropologists working in advertising, marketing, consumer behavior, organizational culture, user experience, and many other roles, you'll learn firsthand what it means to do business anthropology and how the work differs from academic anthropology. We will discuss issues like the pace and depth of research in business, our visibility and influence as practitioners, and what we can do to build our brand. We will also focus on the value and impact of our research in business so that we can help business leaders understand why they should be hiring anthropologists. I'm your host, Matt Arts, a business anthropologist specializing in design anthropology and working at the intersection of product management, user experience, and business strategy. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Matt Arts of Anthro in Business. I'm here today with Laura Korcheva. Uh, Laura is a visiting researcher at the Ludwig Maximilians University in Munich, previously a senior research associate at the Technical University of Munich, and you also are, are quite busy outside of the academic world, a convener of IASA, previously at uh, you know, some, a lot of applied experience over the last 15 years, a coach at Think, Make, Start, you're on the Epic Content uh steering committee and a little bit involved with the why the world needs anthropologists so we'll talk about that and mm-hmm. also i believe said co-founding a startup so it would be good to maybe talk about a little mm-hmm. bit of the application of anthropology to sort of entrepreneurship endeavors so thanks for joining mm-hmm. me today um would you begin by telling everybody how you came into anthropology um, yeah, thank you for inviting me, Matt. I was really, um, really excited to get your invitation because I love your podcast and there's been some fantastic colleagues uh, with amazing stories um, that have been featured. Um, so how did I come to Antro? It's, um, um, yeah, it's it's a bit of a long story. Uh, perhaps the, the very quick summary is that uh, for biographical reasons, um, and uh, also professionally, biographically, I think I was an anthropologist all my life. Um, and professionally, because I've been a misfit, um, first because of the biographical reasons, but also um, I think as time went on, I really found a lot of value in being the misfit. And perhaps I can um, expand a little bit on that. But um so I'm going to date myself, but um, my childhood was um, was behind the Iron Curtain. Um, so I was uh, born in Bulgaria and I, my childhood was in Sofia. Um, and so I think um, through that, um, I kind of from very early on developed this kind of sensibility and knowledge about other worlds, um, right? So... Um, this uh, kind of knowing there's something else beyond the border. I was heavily policed back then, um, you know, and wondering what kind of world that is. And, um, you know, seeing the Western as the other, it was almost this kind of forbidden world, right? Um, That I think growing up as a child, you kind of have a fascination with like, wow, what what does that mean, right? Um, And then also because I think at the time, the Soviet way of um, instilling internationalism in, in children and kind of promoting that ideology was uh, through um, offering a lot of um, children's books were often folk tales from other people's, right? Uh, other people's folk tales. So uh, growing up, I was reading a lot of uh, Baltic people's folk tales and whatnot, whatnot. So it was just kind of this... Um, um, as it happened, right, by force of circumstance, it was, um, I, I was always growing up aware there's other worlds out there somewhere. And I'm very curious about how they are similar or different or, or whatnot, whatnot. Right, so um, that's, uh, that's one thing. Um, although I, I should say, right, more than half my life now, I've been, I've been not, um, I've, I've been a nomad for most of my life. Um, but I think I do have to credit that um, that formative years, I guess, 
um, about being curious about all the ways of living. Mm-hmm. Let's put it this way. Um, and then, you know, personally, I think, um, um, you know, I'm easily bored. I like multitudes. Um, and so I think this kind of professionally translated in, in my path to anthropology, um, of course, nobody, you know, wakes up one day and says, oh, I want to be an anthropologist. Um, but um, growing up, I didn't know what I wanted to be. I wanted to be, you know, uh, first a journalist. I was really, I, I founded my, my, the first un- school newspaper when I was eight or seven or something like that, I think. Um, and then I wanted to be in theater for a really long time, um, which kind of translated in being um, going for creative writing and broadcast media in my undergrad. Um, but then I got really bored because I was on the production side. I was never in front of camera. So I got really bored with having to push the same button at the same exact second of every day. That was just not for me. Um, and so at um, Columbia College Chicago, where I got my um, where I got my bachelor's in cultural studies, they kind of had this curriculum where they were really foregrounding the almost vocational and hands-on aspect of doing something, but also they had a, a blended curriculum uh, with you have to take classes in anthropology and philosophy and history. And so this is how I got cultural studies uh, bachelor um, there. And at the end of my BA, again, I had the problem of misfitting and wanting too many things at the same time. I didn't know if I want to be a human rights lawyer. I didn't know if I want to be in arts management. I somehow thought I should go in psychology. And that was, I'm so glad this never happened because I would have been a terrible psychologist and that would have never worked for many, I, you know many, many reasons, but um, I had a fantastic uh, mentors of Columbia College, um, um, Andrew Causey and John Erdman, who are both anthropologists and who kind of really steered me towards, listen, you really should be an anthropologist. Um, so I was tapped a little bit, but I think I'm forever grateful to them because I think that was the, you know, the right kind of push that I needed at the time. And then I was accepted. Um, I accepted a spot at Northwestern, which was uh, fantastic because there um, you're required to think and act in multiples because it's one of the few four-field anthropology programs um, in the U.S. So you are trained in all four fields, by biological, archaeology, linguistic, and social anthropology. So that was uh, really a, a appeal to my uh, inability to to say yes to just and pursue just one thing. Um, but also there, I think I was a little bit of a misfit again because I was um, an Eastern Europeanist in a largely Africanist department. I mean, Northwestern is the premier Africanist school. Um, I think in, um, in the US, it's fair to say. Um, and also I was not coming as unlike most of my, of my colleagues was not coming from anthropology, right? Mm-hmm. Um, most of them just just would have bachelors in anthropology, and I didn't. I had this hodgepodge kind of uh, background, and so I think through that, it's it's interesting because I think that experience was very formative in current in informing how I currently approach uh, somehow this conversation about translating anthropology and how anthropology can appear a bit standoffish to an outsider, right? With the really jargon, heavy duty jargon that sometimes we adopt. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, I, um, but I'm also a very staunch believer, I think, um, and defender, it's fair to say, um, of anthropology against charges that is too elitist. And perhaps we, we can go back to that um, later on, but um, uh, to speed the story up along a little bit, I uh, graduated in 2012. It was a terrible year to graduate because there were just no jobs, period, right? I mean, we often, we very often hear there's no jobs. Um, I I talk to people who graduated in 2003 and they say, well, there were no jobs. (laughs) Um, And then colleagues now are saying, oh, but there's no jobs. 
um, in 2012, you know, two years after the after the bubble and all the mayhem that happened, there they really, really were no jobs. Luckily, I got a postdoc, um, but then after that, I had to quit all professional endeavors whatsoever um, because of uh, having to take care of a very frail and um, ill family member. So I was uh, kind of also experienced this a, a bit of a kiss of that of, you know, massive gap on your CV. Mm-hmm. There's nothing. You just disappear. Um, and then, um, but that wasn't the end of it, right? Um, I was always, I think, through all of those experiences, I was always very much looking at the world and all everything that was happening around as an anthropologist but still looking for ways to promote anthropology and to do something with it with other disciplines and this is how i ended up at the technical university of munich in the management department the center for entrepreneurship research um, that you just mentioned and there i did both research on questions of how academics can be encouraged to become more entrepreneurial and to start their own ventures um, and moonshot venturing. Um, but also I was uh, in a more applied vein um, coaching. And this is um, this is where I was bringing a lot of anthropological kind of thinking um, and methods uh, to uh, a makeathon. Think Make Start is a makeathon um, to engineering and business students trying to create their own ventures from, from scratch. So... Um, um, yeah, and then most more more recently, I'm currently working on a project on um, innovation and sustainability and speculative anthropological methods. That's the, the work that I'm doing at the LNU, mm-hmm. um, and I'm, I'm in the process of um, co-founding um, initiative on um, well, the vision is preparing society to live with and eventually as robots. So yeah, great. Well, fairly, fairly meandering path through a lot of things, <laughs> but I think that probably resonates with with people. Yeah, with most listeners from from those that reach out. So thanks for sharing all that. Um, so there's a there's a lot of things in there to dive into. To go all the way back, you know, you use the term misfit. Mm-hmm. Do you use it in the sense mm-hmm. of like literally not fitting into various situations or being like in the Oftentimes in the in the states, you know, we use it in the sense of like a maybe not derogatory, but maybe somewhat negative, where like you're kind of bad, you know, like. And so, is it just not fitting into the context, or is it actually like you know being bad or difficult or kind of going against the norm? It's a great question. I think I I am aware of this negative connotation. I am trying to take it back for many reasons. Because I think a lot of anthropology is contrarian mm. in, uh, in its approach, right? I think a lot of us have this feeling of saying, yes, but, right? Or, but what if? So, you know, poke a little bit. Um, at the status quo. And I think that, um, and also, you know, if I think about how do we present ourselves and how do we translate our value to businesses, especially, um, a lot of, I think a lot of, rightly, a lot of effort has been uh, recently um, kind of focused on conversations about how anthropology informs strategy. And we see a lot of anthropologists working in strategy and foresight, and I think that's fantastic. But I also think there's a substrata that that we're not paying enough attention to and that we're not kind of owning enough, is that anthropology can also be quite tactical. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be, you know, the method is, um, is very um, creative and improvisational. I think that when we're very good at you know, capturing the unexpected and rolling along with it, right? I think this is what makes us really good specialists, for lack of a better word, at, um, you know, dealing with uncertainty mm-hmm. and with curveballs. And I think this is one of the things that, that really make anthropology valuable to businesses, whether it's corporations, right, or whether it's um, even startups, 
that are operating under conditions of very pervasive uncertainty. And so I think the misfit is partly tongue-in-cheek because, you know, in order to be an anthropologist, I think that, you know, and, um, you know, colleagues may disagree with this or it can be a, a kind of a polemical point, but... Um, I think we have to constantly disembed ourselves, right? I mean, we do operate into these spaces of of um, discomfort, mm-hmm. right? That uh, where where we have to see the world anew, to make the familiar strange, right? So this is a kind of a process of disembedding, and in many ways, purposeful misfitting, <laughs> right? Um, so it's a question of operationalizing that, but also. Um, a question of how do we do we translate that process? Um, it has been a bit of a, a bit of a, a, a risk taking on my part to say I'm a, I'm a misfit and this is actually exactly what you need. Um, but I think it also and also I think okay to be fair perhaps because my experience is mostly dealing with startups and the innovation sphere and you know that kind of language I think has currency i'm not entirely sure if this language is the is the absolute best if you are if you are talking to somebody at c-suite level uh, i don't know i'd be curious to to hear you know from colleagues on on that topic but um yeah i think sometimes you know our value is that there's a devil in every detail of every business and that devil is tactical and you need a appropriately tactical misfitter to make sense of it, right? Um, so yeah, um, a bit of taking away the negativity and a bit of tongue in cheek, and it's. I, I think it's it's uh, something that every person should present themselves as they are comfortable, and you know, I'm I'm comfortable with that. So <laughs> no, that's great, and uh, I I can appreciate it, and uh, you know. If, in many ways, you know, have been highly contrarian in, in lots of aspects of life, and but coming from a for me coming from a business background because I studied business and technology early on and went into anthropology, yeah. you know, I can see how the critique of anthropologists being kind of contrarian or too difficult in like certain settings, you know, is real and valid. Mm-hmm. You know, to see one word turn into like, you know, a 40-minute sort of diatribe about like the meaning of something can be highly mm-hmm. disruptive to to maybe valuable and maybe the right thing to do in some some argument, right? But it can also be mm-hmm. sort of highly disruptive to like the productivity of say maybe a meeting um, in, in some, sure. some sense. And so obviously there is, you know, there's pros and cons to that perspective and to acting that way. And maybe it's about, you know, finding the right time to do it. You know, we could maybe make the argument in, in a professional context. But, and I'm sure there'll be people listening who completely disagree with that statement. But, you know, that's that's how I feel, sort of straddling the business tech world and, and anthropology. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so for people who, you know, for, for people in the, maybe the business world who think that sometimes we are too difficult, how do you sort of go about doing it effectively? Right. How can you sort of be contrarian and challenge them in a productive, sort of effective, maybe you could even argue efficient way without possibly bogging down the process to where, you know, if you're working with startups, you never, you know, you, you never create anything. So I think there's a nuance between being traditionally critical, right? Like the kind of critique, what you just said, you know, go on a diatribe or, you know, like uh, really go off the deep end, um, critiquing a concept or um, never really making that switch from critique to prescription, right? Um, Or just staying within the critical phase. Um, And so that's the the one thing. That's not what I'm advocating for in, in saying that you're being difficult. But I think that business and you know sometimes i've experienced this with with sparring with ceos for example although admittedly i don't have as as much um experience as perhaps some of the colleagues listening in on the show or um but you know like people appreciate this fresh perspective 
that comes from a uniquely anthropologically critical view on the world. And I think that's one of one of the values that we could bring, right? As long as, as you said, it's not a question of just never answering the and so what now this kind of complementary um, aspect mm -hmm. of that critique that necessarily I think must come, right? Yeah. So, so what if we critique capital, right? Um, what if we are critical of, of that conversation? Um, we need to be able to make and build in into our, our practice um, as applied anthropologists in business, uh, this switch on using the critique to provide value for businesses. And that is, I think, through um, also being able to, to really adopt the consulting mindset, mm -hmm. right? When, when you're saying, okay, and now this, yeah. now this is what you have to do for this and that reason. Okay. So, so, um, so when you shared your story, you know, you kind of jumped from the PhD classic, you know, four field, obviously mm -hmm. not very applied to, mm -hmm. you know, to doing some applied work. I mean, I know you had the gap year, but, you know, to, to mm -hmm. coaching. So what, you know, where in there was your sort of transformative experience that helped you start thinking in this more consultative or entrepreneurial way? And and maybe it happened earlier, but like, at what point did you sort of switch out of the mode of like, you know, probably what I assume you were learning in that kind of academic program to, you know, really the way you're thinking and talking today? Yeah. So I think... So my, the, my, my dissertation was on the question of acting under uncertainty. Right. Um, so my question was, how do people um, live their lives when they don't know what what's happening around them in questions of pervasive sociopolitical change that makes life everyday life uncertain? Right. Um, how do you make decisions about because I was working with with women. So it was a question about how do you make decisions about, um, you know, child care? Uh, when do you start a family? How do you construct your your career, et cetera, et cetera? So, um um, that lent itself topically, I think, very readily to questions that innovation and entrepreneurship are fundamentally very interested in because, um, you know, one might argue that entrepreneurship is acting under uncertainty and discovering the, the you know, new market product opportunities um, under uncertainty and dealing and overcoming that uncertainty, right? So I think topically... Um, I think already the interest that I had um, during my academic career and my education lend themselves productively to making that switch. Um, but more, I don't know what to call it, dispositionally perhaps, I think I was always very curious about what more can anthropology do in the world and for the world, right? I mean, one of the frustrations that I've always had with, with um, the traditional way in which academia still operates is that there's a lot of potential there that just does not translate to, and, you know, it's an overused word, but impact, mm -hmm. right? So... It can be an impactful endeavor, but it never is. So I was not very, I'll admit, I was not very patient with the peer review process. You know, I I knew, you know, so, so what if I can critique the system that produces the insecurities in, you know, in, in my um, interlocutors' lives? And, you know, what if I can really know how to help them, but nobody listens, right? So I was always looking for a way that I can take this um, anthropological skill set and commitment to people uh, and, you know, to people-centered any and everything um, and to really find a context in which this creates impact and a lot more ripple. And that is far more immediate than, you know, the usual, oh, we give voice to our interlocutors um, and it's in an article that's behind the paywall that's published uh, four or five years after, uh, you know, after the the research was done and, you know, who gets to read it, right? I mean, I'm caric 
I'm making a bit of a caricature out of that process, but we all know, I think, especially those of us who have left academia and have had that struggle, we will recognize that impatience with um, with the so what, right, um, of this very elaborate, otherwise, um, process. So um, innovation and entrepreneurship was this for me. I thought, okay, this is um, this is a context where I can really see how you know so coaching can really can really help um can really help engineers and um entrepreneurs um come you know create better businesses in mm-hmm. the end of the day right Absolutely. yeah so. and so now I, I you know i know you you called out the need to be tactical, but I, I actually want to go back to strategy for a second because, mm-hmm. you know, strategy is one of those words. I just said this in an email to somebody the other day, but it's one of those words that's even like rarely agreed upon in business, in business like literature, sure. even less so outside of that. And it is, you know, I oftentimes see people sort of just referring to it in like you know, casual ways, like, you know, it's sort of a trade-off or the decision we make. And, you know, I don't really see it like as necessarily being used in a way that's constructing, you know, sustainable kind of competitive advantage or laying out sort of like long-term intent, you know, where you're going to go up against, uh, you know, entrenched players and you're going to find a way to do so, you know, over over a very long period of time, like, you know, Honda did when it when it started with, like lawnmower engines or whatever it's, I forget what it started with, but it, weed whackers yeah. or lawnmowers, like, you know, and, and having that 20, 30 year vision, it's often, it seems, you know, while, while there might be some quote unquote strategies that come out of the work we do and are highly successful, it still doesn't seem to me to, you know, to be generally the term in art when it's used by anthropologists just seems a little light on maybe the the long-term vision of that. So how do you look at strategy, you know, in the entrepreneur space? How would you define it? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't know. I don't, I, I really will have to, to think longer than, on the space and time I have in a, sure. you know, in, in a conversation like that. But um, is there a single, does it need to be a single way of defining strategy? Uh, I mean, I know exactly what you're saying, that there's disagreement on what it is. Um, in the entrepreneurship context, I would say there's a lot of, uh, you know, interest around storytelling, right? I mean, I think a lot of colleagues are going to say, you know, strategy is the story that is being built up around the venture. Um, you know, and that's the strategic narrative. And the strategic narrative also ripples into the whole structuring of the culture of um, of a particular venture um, or an organization, right? Um, so I think that's one way of... of you know, setting up what strategy is and how it can benefit from um, from anthropology. What um, what is the general well myth around the around the the venture, right? Whether it's a small venture or a big venture that is being built, how does that myth operate internally and externally? Um, but also, and this is again where I have to say, um, we really ought to think about the difficult, the, the difficult interaction between strategy and tactics, right? Because the way that strategy is enacted is going to have perhaps some tactical component. Um, whether you're talking about different departments within a large corporate and how, you know, they're taking up the vision differently and why is that not, you know, how is that affecting the performance, right, of, of a particular or particular corporate, I think, um, or venture. I think, um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's kind of the immediate, the immediate answer that I have for you. Um, I'm not sure if this answers your questions too much, but... Um, 
Yeah, so no, thanks. I'm curious to know why, why you're bothered by the by the strategy talk. Now you have to tell me. Uh, no, I just, I guess I think it is used in a way that is maybe not. I mean, I appreciate there's different models in the business world, you know, from, you know, Porter's yes. forces to like what I was alluding to with strategic intent. And, you know, there's, you know, the, there is no shortage of, of ways of looking at strategy. But I oftentimes just, I feel the word is overused, you know, that mm. we're, that it's not necessarily, you know, that a, a decision alone is not being strategic necessarily, Right. Just the, the fact that you make a decision right. does not necessarily mean you're being strategic or at least effectively strategic. Um, sure, sure. And so, you know, it just seems to me that there is an opportunity for us to better define how we contribute to strategy. But to do that, we, to some degree, have to at least define what strategy is. Um, you know, what is it that we're contributing to? And and some, that's obviously a project for off offline of this podcast, but it, it just, it, it keeps percolating up, but I want to know, okay, but what is it that you're actually doing? Like, you know, it's, it's not just, here's my insights. I think you should do this, you know, right. Do yeah. it's, it's more than that to me. And so um, anyway, maybe, uh, maybe that's for, for some future conversation somewhere, but moving, um, so moving, you know, given the podcast format, moving you know, to move beyond that, just for the sake of, of time, um, this work that you're doing in entrepreneurship is it's also interesting because, you know, you're an anthropologist teaching not in an anthropology department like myself, like, you know, some colleagues here that I um, that actually quite, you know, quite a number of us in the business anthropology department just don't teach in in, you know, don't teach in anthropology departments. Business is very common. Right. And so. That's an opportunity for us to to bring our ideas to somebody else, but there's also a challenge in that. And so, seeing as you're in that world, do you you know you want to speak to how you're approaching that? How do I teach anthropology to non-anthropologists, to to engineers and and management students? Um, well, currently, I no longer do. That was the role in in, in my last position. Currently, it's just a research position, but. Um, I actually enjoy that process a lot. It is challenging, as we all know, um, because it's not part of a curriculum, right? It's not part of where where you have to really synthesize a lot of a fairly complex discipline with a lot of different subparts, right? Um, into what is usually just a workshop or sometimes even if it's a if even if it's a semester long course it's still quite a lot um so um in my practice uh two courses that i created i don't know if that's of interest to to your audience but um so one of the courses was called cultural analysis um and Basically, it was teaching cultural code, right? Seeing culture as a as a as a system of codes that can impact um, both mature organizations and how they operate and what happens in terms of um, in terms of performance, right? I mean, because this is what business the business world is interested in performance, right? How do we enhance it? How do we maintain it? Um, and how culture impacts that. Um, but also um, a question of how do you understand the cultural context which offer you the opportunity to create something new. And this is actually a, a point where I see is, is quite shared. This is a shared uh, area of, of interest and practice for both anthropologists, regardless of whether they're academic or applied, or um, uh, alternatively also entrepreneurs and, and management um, uh, practitioners, is that we're interested in the new, I think. So, um, you know, that conversation around what is new, how do we know it, um, how do we create the new, right? Um, is is a way that I've tried to um, to share with my students. Um, and then the other approach that I've enjoyed a lot has been 
um, co-teaching with colleagues from, from different disciplines. Um, so a class that I created um, was called um, Out of the Box, um, Practical Approaches um, to Entrepreneurship and Innovation. And that was co-taught with a colleague who was from strategy, pure strategy and management scholar. Um, uh, a colleague uh, with a background in physics and psychology and me. And uh, basically the, um, the gist of it was how do we define what's a problem, right? And those three very, very, because of course in entrepreneurship, you know, the, the problem solution diet, mm -hmm. right? That's very, you know, that's on every pitch deck ever, right? This is the problem. This is the solution. Ta-da, you know, give us the money. Great. Um, how do you, how do you define what's a problem, right? How do you know that it's a problem? Um, way before you start validating, right? Um, and so that was a, um, a course where the three different disciplines offered kind of their own, not always reconcilable way of, this is how we look at this thing called the problem um, in social sciences. And I've also enjoyed that a lot because I think it's it's kind of hopefully it has planted in, in the heads of, of the students that um, not everything has to be reconcilable also, mm -hmm. right? Um, that's not how the world works. It is this, you know, you can't always make the messiness, messiness really neat. And that's, um, um, I think that, um, yeah, I mean, by the feedback, people have enjoyed um, that kind of insight okay. um, very much. But um, I would, yeah, I would say that it pays for anthropologists to co-teach with colleagues from very different backgrounds uh, because it helps us also in structuring those courses and those and you know in those formats where again whether it's a course or workshops or whatever it really helps us also to probe and to innovate our own methods and our own vocabularies and how do we do we translate right that's the biggest preoccupation how do we translate anthropology not only to students but also to colleagues across campus or across industry and so based on you know, your coaching experience, your entrepreneurship research, uh, even the work you're doing now as part of the, the, the startup you're co-founding, how do, what's your process for going about defining the problem space? What's my, oh, long, long, good question, a very rich question, but long answers. Um, the short the short answer would, to that will be that I believe a lot in the power of iteration. I think anthropology is very iterative, but we don't quite acknowledge it mm, often ourselves, it's, it's especially in the in the classic, uh, you know, in the classic settings and mm. the academic settings. But I think um, w through iteration and through keeping alert. I think anthropologists are very good, the masters of serendipity and alertness, right? Um, how, how do we know that we've reached a true insight? I mean, that's a very, very difficult question to kind of answer in, in, in two sentences, but um, it's, um, it's kind of, and it's, you know, also for me, it's, a, it's an ongoing practice on how do I become better at translation, at, you know, innovating at um, scaling the, um, the mindset and, and whatnot. But I would say that I iterate a lot. Okay. So you're involved also in, you know, we've mentioned at the outset, but a number of, you know, organizations that I, you know, you're sort of volunteering at, I would say, right? And so, mm -hmm. um, yeah. you know, with iteration in mind, Adiasa, you're trying to do some new clubs and kind of go global and sort of iterate on that existing mm -hmm. model. So one would you, mm -hmm. just for anybody who's listening that maybe isn't familiar with the European Association of Social Anthropologists, mm -hmm. would you just give like, you know, a brief explanation of what that is? Um, and then maybe we can talk about what you're doing to iterate on that model and where you're taking it globally. Sure. Happy to. So the European Association of Social Anthropologists is the European counterpart of the AAA in the US. 
Um, and through that, one of the interest groups um, is the Applied Anthropology Network, where I'm a co-convener uh, currently with Marcus Hotmuller and Pavel Borechki. And um, that um, group of that network um, is uh, specifically dedicated to establishing a platform for promoting the value of applied anthropology broadly construed, right? Not only in business, but also in, in NGOs and um, non-for-profit sectors as well. Um, government sector um, activists, right? So it's, um, it's a, a fairly broad network, fairly polyphonous, um, you know, multiple, multiple voices um, in there about what it means to be an applied practicing anthropologist, which I love about the network. Um, and so that's, um, that's kind of the main platform and network in Europe for pro promoting the value of anthropology. Um, until now, why the world needs anthropology has been a, um, a kind of um, main event and it will continue to be so. That's the annual conference. Um, and there's also a book that um, I know um, Dan spoke about um, that just came out. Um, so that's the conference, but to that, going further, we're currently developing um, what's called Apply Clubs. And so Apply Clubs is a kind of a um, communitarian infrastructure, if you will. They are clubs. Um, each club has a leader. Um, or a group of leaders uh, based on subspecific topics. Um, so I can tease already a little bit. Um, we have um, Applied Club Innovation and Entrepreneurship coming up. We have Applied Club Legal coming up, um, Applied Club Design. Um, and already we've kicked off um, Applied Club Anthropology and Organizations, um, Digital Methods in Remote Research and um, Anthropology of um, the Built Environment. So those are fantastic colleagues that are leading those, um, um, those clubs. Some are based in Europe, some are based in, in, the, um, in the US. Um, so it really is a kind of um, meeting place in a, in a space of... Um, colleagues interested in those specific subtopics, finding mentors, finding jobs, discussing the latest in the topics and challenges that, that you know, that particular subfield chairs. Um, and um, so this is kind of um, the things that we're building at the network going forward. Um, but it is very much, um, you know, although we are based in Europe, we're very much um, open to uh, a broad range of conversations um, and we collaborate a lot also with um, with colleagues from from around the world so yeah. and so where can people find information on the clubs uh, so that is going to be um, officially very very officially uh, rolled out at the conference got it um, so I wanna uh, I wanna invite everybody to why the world needs anthropology, uh, an anthropologist conference in Prague. It's going to be in Prague, physical, but also online. Um, so um, this year the topic is on social movements, and um, a very exciting topic because I think um, we are, as I said, we are celebrating also the work. Uh, of colleagues who are not necessarily in business, but it's a topic that I would argue actually is very important to business. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about that or not, but um, the apply clubs are going to be officially announced also at the conference, and there's going to be a series of events where um, you get to talk to me and Marcus about the overall structure and vision behind apply clubs. Um, but also whoever's interested in a specific club, they can just um, talk to the club leaders and meet the members um, at that event virtually. Right. And whoever's in Prague. So there is still, um, for the event, there's still some calls for submissions uh, of, I think, yes. various, various uh, sort of formats. Um, mm -hmm. Can you speak to any of those that are, um, that are going on at the moment? 
So I think by the time you publish, you publish the podcast, that call will be closed. Okay. Um, but um, uh, unless unless the, the the program chair decides to to extend it, and I uh, I'll admit that this is not yet the conversation that we've had. Um, so I cannot say one way or another. But um, let me put it this way: um, whether people are able to submit to perspectives or, um, you know, an idea for a workshop, whether virtual or in Prague, is one thing, um, you know, as, as being a participant. But I would very highly also encourage everybody to to attend as an audience and to get engaged into that conversation, you know, um, even if they cannot, um, you know, so submit for whatever, for whatever reasons, if... Um, if the call does not get extended, um, because I think the conversation that uh, another conversation we should be having a lot more is precisely between the business anthropologists and the and uh, you know the activist practice in social movements that happens. Mm -hmm. Right? I think businesses are gonna increasingly going to have to take into account. Um, social activism, generational issues, um, the kind of, of um, um, you know, the social scalability of tech, if you will, mm -hmm. right? That is um, very much enmeshed with, and I would say, responding to, right? It, it, it depends on, on, on this kind of social mood out there. Um, and we've seen this also, a lot of businesses get, get cancelled, um, because they're not sustainable, people stop buying their products, and you know, and and this on the other side is driven by a need to understand the social movement. So um, I think it's very important, even though it doesn't say explicitly business in the in the, or anything remotely encoded as business in in this year's team. I think the team is tremendously important. Yeah, I agree. Um, also to business anthropologists. And vice versa, I think it's important for activists to find a way if they want to inform and not just critique, right, business, uh, which we also have. Sometimes um, very activist anthropologists are very critical of business and the, the effects of business and capital on communities, on practices, etc. So I think I see the biggest value, and that's why I'm so excited about this event, is um, um, is that we can have those conversations. Um, yeah. So the call for, for workshops and papers and um, submissions is, as of today, the 24th of July, um, still opened. And that's on a, on a link that I can send to you. Um, and then um, it closes fairly soon. So, um, but perhaps, I don't know, if we decide to extend it, then perhaps you can include the link yeah. as you publish the book. Yeah, we'll probably have this one out after that. But nonetheless, it's good to hear about, you know, the, the perspectives that you're sort of trying to bring in. And I think that points to, you know, the conversation, like you said, is important for business to be thinking about, you know, the, the social issues, not just because, you know, I mean, of course, we know that they sort of are being forced to change, right? But, um, yeah. right, they also obviously ought to change. Now, um, yeah. for the greater good. Now, some people, as you said, sit back and critique that and don't take it past that. Um, some people do join companies and make you know, some degree of impact, but frequently probably not as much as they wish. Now, that's fine. That's still contributing. And, you know, we would probably still encourage everybody to, to join businesses and make the small changes they can. But there is also another path, which is starting your own business, so that you have mm -hmm. full control to do the right thing. Um, and so you're charting down that path. And of course, you know, it It now relates to research you've done in the past on entrepreneurship, but now you're also sort of doing it for yourself. And so I guess I'd ask what made you, you know, take that leap? You know, why did you decide now was the time mm -hmm. to do that? Maybe let's start there. Why now? Um, I, I really think that, you know, the kind of, the kind of epochal change and, you know, 
existential conditions that climate change is going is going to bring upon us collectively on a planetary level and scale um personally i i i have been increasingly reflecting on and why now because i think now is perhaps and this is again very personal decision um it's um not to say not even late but it's um you know it's it's time it's time for people to start thinking about how do we how do we address that individually as communities as as professionals right and so i think again um for me it was a question of how do we how does an anthropologist do something about it right um about this complex um upheaval that's coming um part of it has been trying to be so vocal about anthropology and about in, in you know infusing thinking like anthropologists wherever i can right whether it's startups or whether it's talking to ceos or, or you know venture capitalists uphill uphill battle right i mean i'm not going to say i'm I, i unfortunately i cannot say that i'm um you know i've been as successful as i've hoped to be but i think that now is the time for anthropology to really step up whether as consultants or whether as entrepreneurs and really creating um ventures that are very much informed by anthropological thinking about the world in within the world right um so this has been one of the aspects and then why robotics um why not quantum computing or you know uh synthetic biology or what not um i really do think that robotics and hardware um is actually a, a remarkably promising um area of development it's just i mean that's that's again perhaps for for another conversation or offline but um robotics to me is a underappreciated and also very difficult area of innovation hardware is a very difficult area of innovation because it's very difficult to scale um and so i actually like difficult things um yeah i i read yeah. in irresistibly drawn to complex problems ambitious projects and crazy people yeah. that you have yeah. in your That's bios so, yeah. great great uh, yeah. it's definitely a great statement and uh maybe uh good to end it there very inspiring so laura thanks for everything uh, i i thank you for the, inviting me uh, yeah, my pleasure good for giving me a stage to to you know uh, contribute my two cents Yeah well it's very welcome and uh good luck with the startup uh, I I support you in your endeavor to to go out there and bring anthropology to the world so thanks very much for coming on Thank you thank you Thank Mark. you for listening to the Anthropology and Business podcast To learn everything you need to break into business anthropology and why business anthropology is one of the best lenses for contributing to business success visit my website at madarts.me where I cover many topics related to business anthropology and beyond. There you will find all the podcast episodes, blogs, and news. Please like, share, and subscribe. See you next time.